Hello and welcome to another episode of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster, and this week I'm speaking with the author of Historic Tales of Arcadiana, William Thibodeau. A century on, the twisted wreckage from the Rickahuck disaster smolders. Passenger trains turned into husk amid pre-dawn fog. Would-be assassins draw straws to determine who will take out Huey Long. And pickers stroll the banks of the Vermilion River during the heyday of the Spanish moss industry, plucking their livelihood from majestic oaks, many of which still stand. This strange country bewilders Vermilion Parish pioneers, and the olive once again pies the waters of the Mermito River. Author William Thibodeau plums the record of southwest Louisiana, breathing fresh life into the fascinating history of Acadiana. William, thanks for joining me. All right, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So what is considered Acadiana? Acadiana is a 23-parish area. It's actually a triangle where it's, uh, that's where predominantly the Acadians have settled. And what is an Acadian? Acadia was uh, years ago before it was before it became Nova Scotia. That was what they call old, old Acadie, uh, which is Acadian. And it's a Mi'kmaq Indian word um, that has something to do with uh, with codfish. It's a um, Indian word, and it means cod. And uh, but um, yeah, it's a t- twenty-three parish uh, area here in uh, South Louisiana. Is it? Well, so did they? So it has a connection with Canada, is what you're saying? Correct. Yes, uh, the uh, Acadians were expelled from Nova Scotia, old uh, Acadie, in 1775, and. Uh, it was all for the land. They wanted uh, the English wanted the, the land, and they were helped by New Englanders to get rid of the Acadians that were in uh, old Acadia at that at that time, and they they intentionally separated the families, sent them, sent them all over the place, uh, but they separated the the men from the women and and children and just just sent them out all all over the place but the majority of them eventually settled here in louisiana unbeknownst to them at that time france had it but then they let uh, the spanish have it so when they arrived here it was under spanish rule and uh, actually the spanish did more for the acadians than the uh, french or english wow Yes. Well, that's a very interesting history, I think. So have you always loved the history of the area? And what is yeah. it that fostered your love of that history? What is it that what now? Fostered your love of that history. Well, I, you know, I grew up here in Acadiana. Uh, uh, the parish where I'm from is just west of where I live. I live in Lafayette, which is Lafayette Parish. But I grew up in Acadia Parish. And... Uh, I've always been interested in uh, in history. Uh, uh, unfortunately, not so much so while I was in school, but later, you know, as you get older, you get a little wiser, hopefully. And uh, and so I'm, that's where my love for uh, history actually developed. 
Well, and this, you know, the latest, you've written two books for us. The latest book has uh, some happy things in it. For instance, the KG Music Hall of Fame and Museum. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the KG Music Hall of Fame and Museum, where it's at, who's in it, maybe? Yeah, the uh, uh, Hall of Fame is in uh, Eunice, uh, and it's in um, South Central uh, Louisiana. And uh, the uh, the museum houses a lot of memorabilia from uh, various uh, Cajun musicians. And one uh, one item that I wrote about was about Aldous Roger, which is Roger. Roger in, in French means Roger. Anyway, it's uh, Aldous, A-L-D-U-S. Aldous Roger was a, a fine accordion player. Uh, here in Louisiana, you know, we have Cajun music and the uh, the accordion plays prominently in in the, the music and so does violins and guitars. But um, Aldous Roger uh, was a was a longtime musician, and the way I tell the story, it's uh, it's a story that was told to me by Larry Miller, who is also an accordion player and accordion builder. He makes accordions, and uh, Larry, for whatever reason, was was in Lafayette one day and he picked up a quick quarter, which is a little advertisement you know for different odds and ends that are, are sailed by individuals and he found an article that uh, that said aldous roger accordion so larry calls the number and the person on the end you know larry, uh, uh, larry miller thought it was uh like um maybe a um not a real uh, Aldous Roger accordion like a model maybe but when he called on the other end of the line was was Aldous Roger and uh, oh, wow. yeah and he wasn't expecting that but he asked Aldous what are you doing uh, selling your, uh, your accordion and I'm sure he's had a number of accordions but he was just trying to get rid of it and, uh, and he recorded a lot a lot of music with with that accordion, and Larry asked him. Larry Miller asked him, "Well, what what are you doing with the uh, with trying to sell that accordion?" And so uh, Aldous said, "Well, I'm, I'm not using it that much anymore because he was he was retiring, and so um, you know most of the uh, Cajun musicians don't regard themselves as as being famous or, or anything like that because." Here in Louisiana, they, they cannot support themselves just playing music. In other words, they have to have you know something else as their mm -hmm. livelihood. And so uh, uh, Aldous just wanted to get rid of it and make a few dollars. Also, but Larry was able to able to convince uh, Aldous, and he told him, he says a lot of people uh, want to know more history and and they they want to preserve that accordion. And so what, at the time we didn't have. Uh, the museum at, at that time, but there was one afoot. And Larry was uh, a member of the, the board that decided where they were going to build the, uh, the uh, museum and, and the wherewithal with all of that. But um, what Larry told 
Aldous, what he was going to do, he was going to buy the accordion from him and hold it until the museum was built, and then he would put it in that museum. And Larry paid $1,800 for it. And over a period of about three or four years, while Larry had it, you know, wherever Larry would go and play, he'd put up the, the accordion, you know, announcing Aldous Roger's uh, accordion just for people that look at it. But he was offered... Uh, Price what uh, what he was paying probably even a lot more than that. But Larry, true uh, to his word, uh, like he told Aldous, he was going to keep it for the uh, museum, and which he did. But Larry had Aldous take the accordion apart, and inside he uh, wrote his name, and it's they even documented it, brought it to uh, um, Notary Public and had a bill of sale and Aldous signed it and also members of his family because Larry didn't want to have problems later on with people saying, well, that wasn't really Aldous. You know, he wanted some witnesses. So he got family members to also sign. And all of that is at at the uh, Acadian Museum, uh, amongst a lot of other stuff. Uh, Like one guy from Crowley donated uh, an old automobile alternator that was used to provide uh, amplification for music. You know, years ago, before uh, amplifiers and stuff, these musicians had to sing really loud, and a lot of it messed up their voice, but uh, one person figured out how he could use an alternator to, to, to uh, for speakers and they, they did that. And that alternator is also in that, uh, in the, uh, uh, museum um, amongst um, there's a lot of other uh, uh, well-known uh, musicians in the, like Joel Saunier uh, very prominent musicians currently still playing and a whole bunch of others but uh, it's uh, I thought it was a really good story and like Larry even says uh, very seldom would he ever pick up a, a uh, quick quarter and so it was more or less like a divine intervention that uh, that kind of guided them that way, and it all fell into place. Yeah, it sounds almost like it. You also have some political intrigue in the book, and, uh, you know, it's almost some historic, you know, uh, something that had happened historically in our nation's past with a man named Elbridge Jerry came to haunt some came to haunt <laughs> politics in Louisiana gerrymandering of course is where you realign realign districts and Elbridge Jerry did that to favor the Federalist back in the beginning of our country and uh, how did that affect Louisiana politics well back then uh, if you owned the uh, the legislature which at the time Huey long did uh, he had a lot of people he uh, once uh, most of them were appointed or elected to various uh, positions, um, Yui Long would get their signed resignation for them on day one and just keep it in his breast pocket up until the time if he ever needed it. But um, uh, as far as uh, realigning districts, you know, that was pretty common back then, and that's uh, how. Uh, old Judge Pavi got uh, really removed from uh, from office. Well, he he just decided he wasn't going to run anymore because uh, everything everything was against him. And uh, Judge Pavi's son-in-law 
uh, was uh, Dr. Carl Wise. That's the, the guy allegedly that uh, assassinated uh, Huey Long. Mm. And that, that was back in 1935. Yeah, it's amazing how, uh, you know, something from our nation's past keeps haunting us <laughs> coming into Louisiana, into a Louisiana governor. And, you know, one of my favorite, let me go to another part of the book that I really like, because it seemed like there's a part of the book that seems like you really enjoyed writing about it, William. And uh, that was the olive, the way it was written, that chapter. Oh, it seemed like you oh, really yeah. enjoyed telling that story. Yes, I did. Yeah, the the old olives and and for the life of me, I don't know how I came across that uh, that photo. It's it's not an actual photo, but, but it's a, a digital copy. I don't have the physical photo, but I don't don't know how I got it. But uh, I've got it, and uh, yeah, I thought that was a, a pretty good deal. And I found newspaper articles where they would take all the, these cruises. Uh, down the uh, the um, uh, what's the uh, uh, down the down the river? They, they would go down to the coast and uh, <clears throat> um, on, on little excursions. That was uh, the Mermental River, yeah, and that's where the uh, olive would ply their his his trade, uh, moving freight and. Uh, yeah, that was all in junction with uh, meeting up at the railroads and they, they would uh, interchange uh, freight at uh, at wharfs at uh, at the wharf at uh, Remington. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the olive is a, it was a rear wheel, uh, a stern rather paddle uh, steamship. Yeah, steam yeah that's that's correct. Yeah, a steamboat stern wheeler, and uh, it was probably built during the reconstruction era and it was owned by local people from the uh, Jennings area and uh, the olive was named after uh, after the uh, the lady uh, that was her name olives and so it was owned by I think uh, I forget I think it's Mr. Sweet that owned it and his son captained it and uh, but they were they were local folks and uh, um, Mr. Legro, he was the uh, engineer, and he died probably in 1970, I think it was. Uh, but I was able to interview his uh, grandson. He was the, the grandson that would meet his uh, his grandfather and was able to pull the uh, the whistle at five o'clock uh, in the afternoon to where the, the men would knock off and, and go home. And then mm-hmm. that was from the rice mills. That was years after you got away from the uh, from the steamboat era. Wow. You know, William, uh, reading your biography, you've had an interesting life yourself. So first, thank you for your service in the Navy. And after your time in the Pacific, you worked for Southern and then Union, Southern Pacific and then Union Pacific. Um, your work with the railroad, did that have a bearing on you, including the story, the story of the, and sorry if I mispronounce it, the uh, Rekoak? Uh, let's see, the, the what now? The Rekoak, the train tragedy? Oh, yeah, Rekahawk. Rekahawk, there we go. Uh, yeah, Rekahawk. It's a little community, uh, 
Yeah, in fact, I was on the district that I I worked on. I was uh, what they call a roadmaster. Now I spent forty four over forty four years with the railroad. Yeah, when I started out as a, uh, a trackman, a uh, track laborer, I worked uh, worked on you know what they call a dandy dancer, uh, who just a track laborer, and then, uh, I just uh, kept getting promoted and. Uh, and became a roadmaster, and I was I was fortunate to always work between New Orleans and Houston, and uh, I really liked my job, and I credit the railroad for uh, giving me a lot of history because uh, part of my job description was riding a train over my district twice a month, and I did it faithfully. And I enjoyed it. Now it gave me the opportunity to talk to um, uh, the trainmen and other crafts, other departments uh, on on the railroad. And as we would go by, uh, these trainmen always had uh, stories. You know, after an accident, people like to put up a cross. Well, uh, even out years after the cross was was gone, these old trainmen, you know, we'd go by a certain area. Uh, and and all that history we just kept getting carried on. People would say, "Well, that's where so and so fell off a boxcar right here." A, a person by the name of Pitt fell off of a, a rail car. That was many years ago, back when a, a brakeman's job was one of the most dangerous jobs on the railroad. Uh, to where uh, uh, a brakeman—that's uh, why you would hear advertisements. Uh, People coming here from Ireland, where their mothers would say, "Don't go work for the railroad," because it was most one of the most it was the most dangerous job at one time. Wow! And uh, that's exactly how uh, unions came about at that time, uh, because it was actually it wasn't for you know better wages or anything like that, but it was it was more or less a, a benevolent uh, society. Somebody would get seriously hurt or, or killed, the, the, uh, this group would, would pick up money and give it to the family. That was before a lot of people you know, didn't have insurance or anything like that back then. So it was, that's what started all of that off. But anyway, all of the stories, you know, just about, Anyways, you go on the railroad, you always hear about uh, different uh, stories. And I used to hear, and that was back in the 70s, I would hear stories about Rickahawk, where some of the local people talked about a headless woman walking the railroad tracks at night. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't pay too much attention uh, to it. But then later on, um, after I retired, really, I'd spent a lot of time at the uh, at the local uh, library at the university dupree library and i would go through uh the archives newspaper archives and uh i would find a lot of these articles and i found the one about the train wreck and uh and i was really pleased with that and i i kept uh, going back and and right after i retired i joined a writing group and i would write about a lot of these stories most of them were railroad stories at the time but um uh, it grew from there you know people 
asked me to uh, submit those to the local newspaper and I would. And after a while, I had three or four different newspapers that I was giving them articles, which I still do today. I send the articles to uh, several different newspapers. But at one time, it was all short articles. The newspapers wanted a 140-word article, and it's very difficult to, to write uh, an interesting story. But, you know, and when you're limited to only 40, uh, 140 words, but uh, so uh, now I write sometimes four and five pages long newspaper articles that I uh, I think are interested in and in, in what people I think would probably enjoy reading about. Yeah, that's one of them, definitely. And I mean, you have so many different things in this book and also in your first book that just there's something for everybody, you know, really even if you're not from that area, because I'm not, and I really enjoyed the books too. Uh, you even got true crime stories because you have a uh, Uzeb uh, Vadrine. I don't know if I'm saying that yeah. last, you know, one at all. You yeah. have, you know, that story in here too. Um, just so much, but I'm, I'm keeping you past the time I wanted to keep you. But William, uh, thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate you. Okay, well, thank you for asking me to, to be on here. And thank you, the audience, for joining us. Both William's books, Hidden History of Acadiana and Historic Tales of Acadiana, are available online at acadiapublishing.com and everywhere local books are sold. Have an author you'd like to hear on the podcast or questions for me? Send me an email at arcadiaauthorconversations at gmail.com. Thanks to Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the theme song. You can find them online on Facebook and Instagram. I'll speak with you again soon.